Well, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians four one. That's where we're going to be today, and we're only going to look <clears throat> at that verse, uh, just a single verse uh, this this morning. I, <clears throat> you know, as we've been going through Ephesians together, I've kind of felt like a kid uh, on his birthday or Christmas with that stack of presents in front of him. You know, and just the excitement and taking each gift and looking inside. And that's kind of how I felt each week as we go through these different truths from the Ephesians and then one verse to the next and the the wonderful uh, treasures that are within each gift. But today, I I feel like that kid, when he sees, you know, behind all those gifts, that big one. You know, like the one that's almost like glowing, this huge present that's been hidden behind all of the others. This verse is that to me, because within this verse, it's really the pinnacle of the letter. It's the the climax of all that Paul has been trying to say. It's a passage that that brings it all together. It's the mother of all presents, really. And this morning, I want us to spend some time just on this passage, that God may unfold to us the treasure wrapped inside of it. You know, as we approach Ephesians 4.1, it comes right on the heels of Paul's doxology at the end of chapter 3, where we looked at last week. He had said, To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And then right in the next verse, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul pens these words, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. This verse really is the the pivot point of the letter. I've described it before as like a hinge, a hinge to the book of Ephesians. Because it's like in chapters 1 to 3, we're we're in one room with its certain decorations and and furniture. And then as we enter into chapters 4 to 6, it's like we're in a, a completely different room. Different kind of furniture, different colors. Everything is different. And it is Ephesians 4, 1, which is the the door that connects this room to the next because in the, the first three chapters, they're, they're really different in terms of theme, style, and structure as compared to the last three. The theme changes. If you look at chapters 1 to 3, the focus has been on our salvation. focus has been on what God has done in us and, and brought us in the church. He talks a lot about the church and, and about the fact that He saved us. But chapters 4 to 6 covers a variety of different topics. Holiness, purity... The family, spiritual warfare, relationships, holiness. Almost seems like a a hodgepodge of different topics. Very different than the first three chapters. The first three chapters have one command. The last three have 40. The focus in the first half of the letter has been on what God has done. The focus in the second half of the letter is on what we're to do. The structure even is very different. If you look at the first three chapters, it's kind of interesting. There's a a symmetry to it. It it begins with a doxology, followed by a prayer, and then a doctrinal treatment of our salvation in the church, followed by a prayer, and ending with a doxology. There's a, a symmetry there. But in the last three chapters, it's six sections dealing with different topics. Even the structure is different. It's almost like we have two different letters, kind of like those two different rooms. And this begs the question, well, what's the link? How are those last three chapters connected to the first three? Why such a different focus and emphasis and structure in the beginning of the letter compared to the end of the letter? Well, our answer is in the very first word of chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, therefore, some of your translations may have I first, but the key word that links the two together is therefore. It's like the coupler uh, between two railroad cars that ties them together. It tells us that 
therefore says that I'm going to tell you some things and they're based upon the things that I have just told you. That's how they connect. We see this word therefore a lot in scripture. Uh, A lot of times it's given to us. Sometimes it's a little therefore. It may be linking one phrase to another or one sentence to another or even a paragraph to another. And sometimes we get the big therefores, the ones that are linking entire sections or even several chapters from one to the other. And, and that's what we have here in Ephesians 4. It's, it's a big therefore. It connects the first half of the letter to the second. And it's not only big in a literary sense, linking those chapters together, but it's also big in a theological sense. And what I mean by that is it, it connects what I do or what I know to what I do. It links... Doctrine to application. It bonds facts to response. Because notice, it is a response that Paul calls for here in chapter 4, verse 1. What is that response? He says, I therefore entreat you or urge you to what? To walk, right? It's an action, an activity, a response that Paul expects here. Paul's urging them to, to respond to the truths that he's declared in these first three chapters. And he's saying, believer, this is what's happened to you. This is who you are. This is what God has done. So therefore, this is what you need to do. Some describe that idea as the indicative imperative model of sanctification. Yes, I know it's kind of theologian speak, but but I want to unpack that a little bit because it's very important that we understand that, this indicative imperative idea. uh, Both of those are grammatical terms. The indicative and imperative describe the mood of the verb or or the mood of the action. The indicative mood is used when you make statements or pose a question or declare a fact or are seeking information. For example, the indicatives in my house that you might hear are, I like burritos or where's the remote (laughs) or where's the dog run to now or two plus two equals four. Or Paul wrote a letter. Those are all indicatives. They're giving a statement indicating a fact or or seeking information. Now the imperative mood, on the other hand, is used for commands or prohibitions or to make a request. For example, in our house you might hear imperatives such as, Don't eat the last cookie. Or could you tell me the time? Or love your neighbor. The indicative simply makes a statement. The imperative is a call to action. And we see many examples of this in the Bible. It's all over the Bible, in fact. This indicative, this indication of information, and then the imperative, the response to that information. And in many cases, that is, oh, covers an entire book, not just a specific sentence or a paragraph. That's the kind of structure we have here in Ephesians. Ephesians is divided in just such that way. And the truths that are connected to the commands, the indicative, the connection between the indicative and the imperative is often with the word, therefore. Uh, sometimes with the word since or for this reason. And I want to show you some examples of this on, a, on an entire book level. Turn to Romans 12. Many of you are familiar with this. Romans 12. We're going to see an example of this imperative and indicative idea. In Romans 1 through 11, Paul's delivered, right, the magnum opus of the deep doctrines of the gospel. He has articulated and explained such truths as the justification or atonement or propitiation or imputation, or total depravity, sanctification, faith, righteousness, Israel's role. So many truths that are connected to the gospel. And then at the end of chapter 11, just as he does in Ephesians 3, he gives this doxology, to him be the glory forever, amen. And then the very next verse, again the hinge verse in Romans, Paul says, therefore, 
people based on what I said earlier. Therefore, I urge you, same three words in Greek that he used in Ephesians, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And then after that statement, he goes on in the rest of the letter to give several more instructions and commands as to how to live out a life in worshipful service. You see, in Romans 1 through 11, we have the indicative. What has God done in the gospel? What is the gospel? Who we are in Christ? And then in 12 to 16, it's the imperative. How do we respond to that in our daily lives? And it's interesting if you count the imperatives or the commands in the first 11 chapters, there's only about 10 directed to believers in Romans. In the last five chapters, there are over 50 commands. Look at Hebrews 10. I want you to see another example of this. Hebrews 10, we'll be looking at verse 19. If you remember, the book of Hebrews was written uh, to Jewish, professing Jewish believers who some of them uh, were struggling. That Many of them were going through trials, persecution, struggling with sin, temptation. And some of them were saying, you know what, I, this is more than I thought it was going to be, this Christian stuff. I, I'm, I think I'm going to go back to Judaism. And so the writer of Hebrews, actually it probably was a sermon initially that he delivered, he spends nine and a half chapters talking about Jesus, the superiority and supremacy of Christ as our great mediator, as the better mediator of a better covenant than the one that they had under Moses. Those chapters in the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews are rich in theology about the, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, His priesthood. They talk about the permanence of his sacrifice compared to the temporary nature of the sacrifices under the law. And then when we get to chapter 10, verse 19, the author says this, Therefore, again, connector, connector word from what he said before in the first nine and a half chapters to what he's going to talk about. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. And then he adds two more commands right after that. So you see, he does the same thing here. He he talks about this therefore, and then he summarizes really what he'd been saying in the first nine and a half chapters about who Jesus is and, and what he had done. And then in response, he says, therefore, let us draw near. And then he says, let us consider, let us hold fast our confession. And after that, he gives several more imperatives, about 20 more imperatives, 20 more commands in the rest of Hebrews compared to uh, only a handful before chapter 10, verse 19. First Peter, it's the same thing. The first 12 verses, Peter talks about the living hope we have in a resurrected Savior and the salvation that God has given. No imperatives, no commands, just indicating truth. But then in verse 13, he says, Therefore, girding your minds for actions, being fully sober, fix your hope. There's the first imperative, followed with another 30-plus after that. 1 Thessalonians has no imperatives in the first three chapters, but 21 in the last three. Colossians has no commands or imperatives in the... Or, excuse me, has three imperatives in the first two chapters and 25 in the last two. Notice the pattern here? As I said before, Ephesians, one command in chapters 1 to 3, 40 after that. What's the pattern? What's the difference? What's the big deal? And why did I spend my week counting imperatives? Well, two reasons. I used Bible software, by the way. I didn't go through word by word. 
Two reasons for that. The first is the indicative reveals the truths to which the imperative is a call to respond. God has done these things. He expects a response, an action. The second reason is the indicative reveals the truths that give the motivation to respond. That's exactly what we see in Ephesians. The the indicative that he gives in chapters 1 to 3, they reveal the truths that there are in the call to respond, as he says in 4.1, to walk in a worthy manner. But also, the first three chapters in Ephesians, the indicative reveals the truths that give us the motivation to respond. So we need both. God expects our response, and God empowers our response. And that's the basic outline I'm going to follow this morning. It's a little different than the one I think you have in your bulletins. The first point will be God expects our response. The second, He empowers it. So look again at 4.1 where we see God expects our response. Paul says there again, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Again, that word therefore tells us God expects a response. I have told you these things. Therefore, for this reason, now... Respond in this way. Right? The Bible wasn't simply written to communicate information to us, right? God didn't simply write these various truths about Himself and what He's done in history just to to give us facts. The Bible is not simply the indicative. The first three chapters of Ephesians have a purpose. We've been given facts about God, about who He is, about what He's done, about who we are, for the very express purpose that we would take action. God gave us His Word to apply it. He wants us to do something with it. Right? You know James 1.22, where James says, Don't just be hearers of the Word, but what? Doers. What's a doer? Not a door, a doer. What's a doer? Someone who takes action, right? Activity, movement, response. Jesus said in Luke eleven twenty eight, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. Or Luke six forty six. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. See, Jesus, when he was speaking and teaching and preaching... And interacting with others, he gave them information, he gave them truths, he gave them facts, he gave them these things so that they would understand and that they would respond. Jesus was not interested in simply filling us with knowledge. He wanted us to respond and act upon that knowledge. Jesus wasn't, you know, just uh, promoting uh, a philosophy or, or, or religion, but a life. And that's the same in Ephesians. Paul wasn't writing about some philosophical niceties so that we could ponder and, and muse upon these deep truths and, and amazing things. He wasn't promoting a feel-good religion, trying to stir our emotions and say, this is all God's done for you. Isn't that great? And then just to, you can live the life how you want after that. That wasn't Paul's intent. Right? He was proclaiming these wonderful and amazing and fantastic, unbelievable truths to move us to live them out. God's done these wonderful things. Therefore, you need to respond. And he said in verse 1, notice his statement, I implore you. That word implore is a word that means to to come alongside with the purpose to help. Parakaleo. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete in uh, in in the book of John. It's translated elsewhere as exhort, encourage, appeal, urge, entreat. 
And, and the idea behind the word isn't you better do this. It's you need to do this. This is important. This is critical. Make sure to respond. There's a sense of urgency here. There's a, there's a sense of concern. Uh, there's also a tone of authority. Not like a drill sergeant, but as a father who's concerned for his child. And after saying, therefore, I implore you, he then adds this statement, I, the prisoner of the Lord. Now, he's already mentioned that earlier, that he was a prisoner. But what's he bringing this up for now? Is he trying to motivate them by guilt or sympathy? Because if you remember, he knew that they were concerned about his imprisonment, right? Back in 3.13, we talked about that. Paul says, don't be discouraged. My tribulations on your behalf are there your glory. So he knew they were concerned. So was he playing off of that? Like saying, hey, look, look where I'm stuck at. You know, why don't you guys do something? I'm sacrificing. What are you doing? You know, Paul's not doing that here. Now, I think what he's, he's referring to is imprisonment because he's emphasizing the importance of what he's urging them to do. He's saying, look, how you respond to the gospel message that I've been commissioned to deliver to you, it is so important to me, I'm willing to go to prison for it. It is so vital. I care so much about you and that you live out God's calling. I've brought you the gospel so that you would know it and respond to it. And I'm, so, I'm willing to suffer for that. I urge you to respond. It's important to me and it's important for you. Don't let my sacrifice be in vain. Remember why I'm in, in prison. That's the idea. And that, that specific response that he calls them to is what? What does he tell them to do? Verse 1 of chapter 4. I urge you, I implore you, I entreat you, I beseech you to walk. To walk in a worthy manner. Walk's a common metaphor. It's used all over the Bible. Uh, not just to talking about physical walking and journeying, but, but more often as a, as a metaphor for how we live out our lives. In fact, Paul uh, shows that back in chapter 2 when he said, uh, he, he basically used them as synonyms, walk and live. He said in verse 2 of chapter 2, we formerly walked. And then in verse 3, we formerly lived. In Scripture, walk is simply a way that a person conducts his or her life. It is what you are characterized by. We use the same metaphor today, don't we? Walk your talk. Or uh, he's walking down a bad road. Now that doesn't mean that the, the person's on a road with potholes and cracks in the pavement, right? No, it's talking about the fact he's on a path or a direction or his life is going a certain way that's not good. The Bible presents two ways to walk. Psalm 1.1, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The Bible often talks about that, going, walking in righteousness or walking in sin. Enoch, in Genesis 5.22, was said of him, he walked with God 300 years and then he was not, for God took him. Or Noah, in Genesis 6.9, it says of him that he was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. An amazing statement to be said of them. They walked with God. That means they, they lived their life characterized in submission to Him. And likewise here in our text, Paul is calling us to that same kind of walk. He says, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Calling here is, is the word that means invitation or summons. And, and often when it's used in the New Testament, it, it, it's in some connection to our election, to our salvation, to our being chosen by God. Paul began his letter to the Ephesians with this idea when he said he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. And then he said in love he predestined, chose beforehand us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And then he said according to the kind intention of his will. Or if you go to 2 Timothy 1.9, 
It says there that God has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace. Or Romans 8, 29. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And then He said, these whom He predestined, He also called. These whom He called, He also justified. Whom He justified, these He also glorified. So there's that connection. That, that calling is, is a calling to salvation. It's, a, it's an election to being chosen by God as His children. Based on nothing in us, as we talked about before, but completely by His grace. But also, too, not only is this idea of God saving us part of this calling, but if you look in Ephesians, Paul spent a lot of time talking about the fact He's called us not only to salvation as individuals, but He's also called us to, to become one fellowship, one body, with the Father and with one another. The church. The church is that other component of being called. We haven't been just called to be individual believers, but to be a community of believers. In fact, the word for church in Greek, ekklesia, has the root idea of being called out. Called out ones is a literal translation of that. 1 Peter 2.9 identifies this when he says, You're a chosen race, or is that chosen again? A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out. There's that word of darkness and into his marvelous light. Notice Paul says here in Ephesians 4.1, when he talks about this, uh, this calling that we're to walk in a manner, how does he describe it? Worthy. Worthy of that calling. Now this is an interesting word. Picture in your mind this. You're in the Old West, right? You're walking along in a dirt road. You got your spurs dinging, right? Ching, ching. You got your prospector. You got a sack of gold. Or for some of us, maybe a pebble. But, you know, we got some gold here. We're going to go to the assayer's office. And we walk in, right? And the door creaks open, you know, and the dust and the spider webs and all that. And you come in. And what's your purpose there? What do you want to do with your gold? Right? You want to exchange it, right? You want to see what its worth is. So you go up to the assayer. He first tests the authenticity of it. And then what does he take out of his desk? A scale, right? What's he going to do with that scale, right? He's going to put your gold on one side. And his finger on the other. No, he's going to, right? He's going to start putting weights, standardized weights on the other side. And what's his purpose in that? Right? He's, he's trying to find out how much gold you have. And what is he looking for as he puts these weights upon the scale? Right? Until they're perfectly matched. There's a needle in the middle that'll say the, the weight of your gold equals this amount. That's the idea of the word here. It's this idea of, of bringing up the scale, balancing the scales, bringing the other beam of the scales into equilibrium with each other. It's that picture. It's that picture of, of balance. Paul's giving us a, a word picture here through this word worthy in order to ask us a simple and straightforward and direct and important question. What does your scale look like? Your calling on one side, your action or response on the other. Do they match up? Does how you walk, how you live, is that an equilibrium equivalent to your calling? And before you answer that question, let's look back in Ephesians for a minute. I want you to see just that, what that calling entails. And look at the terms and the descriptions of those who've been called. Back in 1-2, he says that we are described as saints, those who've been set apart by God and for God. In 1-3, he says we are chosen to be holy and blameless. In one five, we're predestined as his sons, adopted as his children. One seven, we're redeemed by the blood of Christ. In one thirteen, we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
secured for eternity. 2.5, we've been made alive, we who are dead in sin. And 2.6, we've been made citizens of God's kingdom, rescued from sin and Satan. And 2.8, we've been saved from God's wrath by His grace. 2.10, we've been created anew for good works. In 2.16, we've been reconciled to God and to one another. In 2.19, we're part of God's household, His family. In 2.21, we're a holy temple, a dwelling of God. In 3.6, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. Essentially, our calling means that we've been brought into fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We have a relationship with God. That is a magnificent calling. That is an amazing description of what God has done. So I ask you again, is your conduct, the way your life is characterized by, does that match up to this calling? It's a sobering question. And that's why you can see the reason behind Paul's tone in 4.1. As he reflects and thinks about all the things that he has said of who we are in Christ, he says, therefore, have your life match up to that. Therefore, I beseech you, I I beg you, I, I want you to understand that your life needs to be worthy of what God has done in you. Paul's taking great pains in this letter to help us understand the indicative of who we are in Christ, of what God has done in us. Oh, to live a life worthy of that. That is what Paul's heart is here. And so many people who claim to know Christ have lives that are completely out of balance with their calling. Completely out of balance with whom they claim to be. Little commitment to the Lord. Little time spent with Him. No pursuit of holiness. Looking, looking and acting more like the world than somebody who is a saint. Somebody who has been redeemed and been chosen. But there's no such thing as a casual Christian. There's no such thing as a mediocre Christianity. There's no room for half commitment. That's the thrust of the statement. I mean, think about the impact that to walk worthy of our calling. 1 John 2, 6 says this, The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. There's one who perfectly balanced the scales, our Lord Jesus Christ, right? Is what you do in balance with who you are, who you claim to be. To say you're a Christian and and to, to live in unrepentant sin is really like taking the crown jewels and and putting them on a pig who's wallowing in the mud. Right? They don't match. It doesn't fit. It it devalues the jewels, right? If you're a Christian, you represent God. You're not only His subject, you're His child. And what the world thinks about God is in a large part a reflection of how we behave. You know, for what God has done for us, what God has done in us, and who we are in Christ, isn't it right for Him to expect that we live in a manner that's worthy of that calling? Philippians 1.27 says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that's the exact message, the same message He gives here in Ephesians 4.1. And there's something I want you to notice. You know, as he, end, as, he, as he writes this verse, He doesn't end the letter here. I mean, he doesn't give all these facts and truths about what God has done in us and for us. And then he hits for one and says, Therefore, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of, of those truths that I've expressed. Have a nice day. Right? He doesn't end it there, thankfully. He doesn't say, Okay, I told you all this stuff. Now I'm going to make you feel guilty to walk worthy in that. Okay, we're done. i got something else to do right now. But Paul, he's a, he's a great pastor. 
Because what he does is he, he gives that high standard and calling, and then he explains how to live it out in the next three chapters. He gives very specific and helpful and wise instruction of what living a life in a manner worthy of our calling looks like in the home, in the church, with one another, in our jobs, just in life in general, in dealing in a world where there's sin and Satan and, and, and wickedness. And so Paul walks us through those things in a specific way in the next three chapters. And as I said, he gives us 40 different commands, 40 instructions, 40 imperatives in order to know how to live out the Christian life. And for those of you who like structure, get out your pens. I'll give you an outline for the next three chapters. Just give you a framework. And what's interesting, is it's divided into six different sections. And it's interesting, in five of those sections, the key verse is a verse that contains that word walk. So let's, let's look at this real quickly. The first section in four is 4, 1 through 16. It can be titled, Walk Worthily in Unity. The key verse is the one we just read this morning. I implore you to walk in a worthy manner. Paul then goes on to explain how unity is connected to that. And we'll talk about that next time. The second section is Ephesians four seventeen to 24. It is to walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. The key verse there is 417. I say that you no longer walk no longer as the Gentiles also walk. The third section is 425 to 52, and it is to walk in love. The key verse there is in 51, where it says, Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And he describes what that looks like within the interpersonal relationships in, in that section. The fourth section is 5, 3 to 14, is walk in light. The key verse is verse chapter 5, verse 8. You who were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And the context of that paragraph and section we see is talking about purity. The fifth section is the biggest one, 515 through 69. And it is to walk in wisdom. The key verse there is 515 where Paul says, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. And then the sixth section, this is the interesting one. Most of us are familiar with the armor of God, right? And in that section, there's no command to walk. He has a different one. He says to stand. The main idea there is to stand firm in God's armor in 6, 10 through 20. The key verse is 6, 11. Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You know, these, these six sections are loaded with teaching. As I said, 40 different commands that, that deal with and give instruction on how to live in these various arenas of life. So those of you who have been waiting for the practical instruction, your moment has come. We're going to spend the next few months talking about these various aspects in life. But as we do, you need to remember something. You have to remember what Paul has laid, the, founda- what, the foundation that he has laid for us. We cannot jump to these commands without forgetting the truths behind them, the indicative and the imperative. And we also need to be reminded that our behavior, that as we look at these various commands and instructions in these last three chapters, that that they aren't given there so that there are means to pay God back for what he's done for us, right? I like the way John Piper expresses it when he was looking at walking in a worthy manner. He said this, This doesn't mean that we should try to deserve our place in God's favor. It means that we should recognize how much our place in God's favor deserves from us. The focus is not on our worth, but on the worth of our calling. 
And I think in that statement there, he identifies the second important aspect of the indicative imperative model that I described earlier. And that is that not only do indicative truths call for action, but indicative truths also give the motivation and the resources to live out that action. God not only expects our response, he empowers it. The truths that that Paul has expressed in the first half of the letter, they provide us the motivation in order to live out the truths and the commands of the last half of the letter. If you remember, I brought up last week, and I, I think I've brought it up quite a few times, how people sometimes when they're struggling with a sin or dealing with an issue in their life, and what do we typically do? We often will jump to the imperative sections. They'll have an issue or struggle or sin in their life and they'll, they'll quickly go to the last three chapters of Ephesians and find the command that's specifically related to that issue and then try to come up with ways to obey it. In fact, many counselors can get caught in that same trap. You know, say a, a couple comes in for a marriage counseling and they begin to tell the counselor about all the fights and the struggle and the trials and the hurt feelings and the sin against one another. And as any good biblical counselor would do, he he grabs a Bible, hands it to them, and tells them, well, open up your Bible to Ephesians 5. We're going to look at a key text on marriage. And so then he turns to the husband, and he tells the husband to read verses 25 to 29, which talk about the husband needing to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And and as he exhorts and encourages the husband, say, this is so important to be sacrificially loving your wife. Let's think of some ways that you can do that. And maybe they'll walk through some examples. And then, in the midst of that, the husband's probably thinking, yeah, I, I read this passage before, many times. I, I get that, but, but this is impossible. This can't be done. You wouldn't be pounding me with these scriptures if you had to live with this woman. <laughs> then the counselor, unaware of the thoughts there, he turns to the wife and he, he tells her, okay, you need to read Ephesians five twenty-two to 24, which talk about, what, the wife needing to be subject and respectful to her husband. And then he does the same thing with her, coming up with ways that she can carry out this command or maybe talk about things that she's doing that aren't consistent with this command. And all the while, while the husband's over here smirking that, you know, finally she's getting getting hers, all the while the wife's thinking, you know, if you knew my husband, if you knew how he treated me at home, if you realized how passive he is, he just won't lead. You wouldn't be hitting me with these verses. You wouldn't be exhorting me in this way. You see, there's a big problem with what the counselor did here. Was it the passage that he selected? Was it? Was that a bad text on marriage? No. No. It's probably like the quintessential passage on marriage. There's great instruction and wisdom and help to know how to have a marriage that honors God and and that, that can give joy to both husband and wife. It's a great text. So what is the problem? The counselor gave them the imperative without first giving them the indicative. He told them what to do before he told them why. He called them to action before he gave them the motivation and the instruction and the truths they needed to live out that action. And we do this all the time. We just want to get to the how-to, don't we? Read most books in the Christian bookstores and what you will find is a book of how-tos. You'll find a book of imperatives or how to live out the imperatives. But they very infrequently talk about the indicative. There may be many helpful instructions on how to live this thing out or how to do this thing or stop doing this thing. And, And again, they can be very helpful. But if you do that devoid of what God has done in you, who God is and who you are, 
that leads down to a path of struggle with legalism, discouragement, trying to live in your own strength. Praise the Lord, Dave. See, the counselor, and we all need to understand this, before Paul gave them any instructions in how to live, he spent three chapters saying what God had done for them. Before he describes the demands of our practicing our faith, he talks about our position in Christ. Before laying out that response expected by God, he first explains the resources from God. It's so critical we understand this. Because we often just jump right to the imperatives. We're wired that way. And that's why Paul spent a lot of effort in those first three chapters talking about our salvation. Some of us are like, Paul, get to the instruction. Okay, get, yeah, God saved me. I, I understand that. Yeah, I know God's big and powerful and, and he's given me lots of stuff. I understand that. Get to the instruction. I need help. And Paul said, I'm giving you the help. It's right here. Do you know who you are in Christ? Do you know what God has given you? Do you know what he continues to give you? That's what you need to understand to live out what I'm going to tell you in the future. This is so critical. If you're struggling in your walk, probably one of the main reasons is you don't get the indicative yet. You know, God has done many incredible things in us. He chose us. He redeemed us. He's given us fellowship with him. He's brought us into this body. And his work and salvation didn't stop there. The first three chapters, again, describe not only who we are, but also what we have. And I want to spend a a few minutes going back and looking at these first three chapters. Because Paul did not just fly by these principles. He didn't just throw out a little speck of the resource and move on. He over and over repeated the things that God has done and continues to do in us. We're going to look, again, briefly at five of those resources And we've talked about them, but I I want us to be reminded and and to look at them one more time so that we understand the resources we have in Christ to empower us to live out a holy life that's honoring to Christ. The first resource, and Paul refers to it often, is the incredible riches we have in Christ. Look back at 1-7. And I'm just going to read these verses. Let the Holy Spirit remind you. Verse one, chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace. In one eighteen, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. 2.7. So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 3.8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's how he summarized the gospel. 3.16, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The riches of his grace, the riches of his glory, the unfathomable riches of Christ. God's wealth is immeasurable. And you know, in each of those verses, did you catch, there was a recipient He didn't just declare that God has riches. There was an object, someone to receive those riches. Who? God's children. Those who have repented and believed and placed their trust in Christ. He says, we have redemption according to the riches of His glory. The glory of His inheritance in the saints. The surpassing riches of His grace toward us. That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory. God's not miserly. He desires to pour out 
his riches. And we see that in the idea that he says here, according to his riches and not out of his riches, right? If you had a friend who was a billionaire, I wish I did, and on your birthday, he gave you a you know, $20 gift card, that, that would be nice. But, you know, that would be kind of him to think of you. But he's giving out of his riches, right? But what if he were to, to dry up, show up in my driveway with a, a Lexus, or, or better yet, a Lamborghini, and hand me the keys, and then hand me a deed or a title to a house up on Sunset Canyon. He says, this is yours. Happy birthday. That would be giving according to his riches, not just out of them. And that is our God. He gives according to his riches. And just how rich is he? And I'm not talking about material stuff. Yeah, he owns everything. Infinitely rich in terms of wealth. He, he has it all. He's the only one you could say, that guy has it all. God has it all. This is all his. But those aren't the riches that I think Paul's focusing attention on, right? It's the riches that we have that are far more valuable that God bestows. His love and His joy. His kindness and His grace. His wisdom and His holiness. His kingdom. His Son. His power. His compassion. Himself. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. In the heavenlies. And these are riches that God freely gives to His children. And in addition to God's riches that He provides for us, Paul also talked about the power, His power at work in us and for us. Throughout the first three chapters, Paul expresses this idea using several different synonyms. Power, might, strength, uh, work or working. In fact, look at 111. Paul says there, We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works... All things after the counsel of His will. In verse 19 of chapter 1, What is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might. He used all four synonyms right in that one verse. 3.16, That He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Verse 20, to him, in chapter 3, to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works within us. God's activity in our life didn't end at conversion. He didn't put all his effort into getting you saved and then leave it there. In fact, looking at verse 20, chapter 320 again, according to the power that works, that's actually a present tense participle, which means it's ongoing, it's continuous, it never stops, is working in us. Or back in 119, Paul said that we would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us. As with his riches, God's power is constantly directed toward us and in us. And just as his riches are unfathomable, so too is His power, immense, immeasurable, unbelievable. You've probably seen pictures, right, of the ominous mushroom cloud, right? From the bombing of Hiroshima back in 1945. And then some of the pictures maybe of the devastation and the power unleashed by a single bomb. Did you know there's less than 140 pounds of uranium that was in that bomb? And physicists estimate because of the inefficiency of the nuclear reaction that probably it was about one gram's worth of uranium that the power was released from. The weight of a penny. That was the the atomic power contained within the weight of a penny is what was unleashed when that bomb exploded. That is unbelievable power. Now imagine if you had one 
bomb that was a thousand pounds of uranium, a billion tons of uranium. How much power is contained within all the atoms of the universe? And then to think, how'd they get there? Billions and billions of... No! I was with my son. We were talking to a guy who was uh, into astronomy, and he said, you know, the sun was 4.7 billion years old. And my son, he said, um, that number keeps growing. Um, (laughs) I thought it was funny. Uh, No, God spoke. All that power in an instant through a word. And he continues to sustain every atom in the universe. Unbelievable power. And that same omnipotent God is at work in you. The third theme we've seen throughout Ephesians 1 to 3 and and it continues on in the last three chapters is God's grace. That's another resource that God has given. His undeserved favor that not only sanctifies or saves us, but also sanctifies us. Ephesians 1, 2, he begins the letter with this. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1, 6, he said to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 2, 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you've been saved. 2.7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2.8, you know this one. For by grace you've been... Don't tell me it's because you all know a different version. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God's unmerited kindness, right? Freely given, freely bestowed, lavished upon us, given as a gift. That happened not only when God saved you, but continues to move on through your sanctifying, through his sanctifying work in you. God's gift is a package that stays open and keeps more keeps coming. It is the gift that keeps on giving. His grace is sufficient today as much as it was needed back when you got saved. The grace that needed you needed to God to bestow on you to turn your heart towards Him is the same grace that He continues to give to keep your heart towards Him and to move you to walk in a worthy manner. His grace is sufficient and available no matter the trial, no matter the temptation, no matter the sin, no matter the circumstance. And, in a, and another resource that's connected to His grace is His free access, His availability, God's availability. We looked at a couple of verses in the last several weeks on this. Ephesians 2.18, For through Him we both have our access to God in one spirit to the Father. 3.12, In whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. Right? Jesus' death on the cross and cleansing us from sin opened us opened up for us an opportunity to communicate with God, have a relationship with Him anytime and anywhere. As Psalm 46 talks about, we have an always available help in time of trouble. A God who will hear us when we cry out to Him. A God who will forgive us when we confess our sins. A God who will never slam the door in your face as if you were some solicitor. 
When you go before God, he doesn't look at you that way. Oh, I got another caller. Right? Tell him I'm not here. God never does that. Psalm 145, 19. I love this passage. He will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And as if these four resources were not enough, his power, his grace, his availability. And I forgot the other one already. I'm stuck. My brain just froze up. Help me out. Riches. Yes, riches. I wasn't quizzing you. I really forgot. That's not good. If the preacher can't remember... His riches, His power, His grace, and His availability. Fifthly, His church. His church. He spent a lot of time in chapters 2 and 3 describing the body of Christ that believers have been brought into. Right in 2.19, He says, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom, you, in whom you, being built together, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Then he repeated that idea in three six, right? Where he said, Gentiles are fellow members and fellow heirs and fellow partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Or in one eighteen, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, which I believe there his inheritance is talking about, the church. We have riches through the church. Right? The church is where his words proclaim, where we're shepherded by gifted men, where we serve one another, where we're equipped to serve, where we pray with one another, where we can sing praises together. I mean, these are great riches and resources we have. I mean, it's so neat to be able to come and with a few hundred other people be singing praises to God like we did this morning. That was a great time. You know, we can do that on our own and, and that's a lot of fun and an encouragement and a joy. But when we're doing it with a lot more people, well, what, what a great um, resource and riches that we have in the church. Church is a refuge in the midst of a sinful world. You know, God's church, His His riches, His power, His grace, His availability, all given to us. Oh, if these truths would just sink deeply within us, all that we have in Christ. And yet so many Christians have this perspective that, okay, God's thrown us a bunch of commands, and then He says, you're on your own, you need to obey or else. I think a lot of us live that way. Yet God does expect us to obey. He does expect us to respond in a manner that's consistent with what He has done. And at the same time, He also empowers us to do so. Brothers and sisters, you know what? You can live a worthy, walk in a worthy manner. You know, if you were thinking earlier as we were looking at that issue and thinking, boy, my scale would look like this. I'm totally out of whack. Completely imbalanced with my calling. You can have a life that walks in a worthy manner. You can have a walk that's consistent with being a child of God. God empowers us to do that. You can obey and do so with joy. Now, some of you may be thinking, but, but Tim, I, I don't see God's resources at work in my life. I, I don't feel His power, His grace. I, I don't experience His riches. 
Well, then my encouragement to you is to go back over chapters 1 to 3. Meditate on those truths. Study them. Memorize them. Beg God as Paul did to help you understand. His prayers are so important in these first three chapters. You remember them. We talked about them a few times. His first prayer was that as he's articulating these truths that they would, that by his spirit, understand them. And his second prayer was that by his spirit, they'd be strengthened in their inner man to live them out. Pray that His Spirit would strengthen you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you understanding. Confess any ongoing sin in your life. This is a major inhibitor to living out the imperative based on the indicative. Rehearse the gospel. Remember way back when, long, long ago, when I told you about, why don't you write on a card what God has done for you, who you are in Christ? And said, put that by your bed and then preach to yourself each day. You need to do that. Rehearse the gospel. And this is who I am in Christ. This is what God has done in me. This is what God continues to do. I would challenge you, go back in these first three chapters and come up with your own summary of, of the things that, God, that Paul writes, talks about and what God has done in you and what he continues to do in you and who you are in Christ. And then meditate on those things. Because listen, understanding the indicative who you are in Jesus, what you have in Jesus. That is the key to the imperative. Don't settle for mediocre in your Christian walk. Don't be satisfied with just getting by in your struggle with sin. That's not walking in a worthy manner. Don't be content to live an average life. God has saved you and continues to equip and give you resources for so much more. You've been given the resources of heaven, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. He's given you access to him. He's given you his church, his power, his grace, and his riches. I mean, these are amazing, fantastic, unbelievable truths. The realities of who we are in Christ, and yet how quickly we forget the struggles or circumstances or trials of life. The, you know, we go a few days and neglect time with the Lord, and that might turn into a few weeks, or you know, we give God spotty time with Him, and then all of a sudden we're, just, we're weak and defeated. And we wonder, Lord, I'm trying. How did I get here? And we often live as if we were spiritually impoverished. I read a testimony this week of a man who, um, who gave it during one of the, an evangelistic outreach of uh, John Wilbur Chapman some hundred years ago. And this is what the man said. He said, I got off the Pennsylvania Depot as a tramp. For a year, I begged on the streets. One day, I touched a man on the shoulder and I said, Hey, mister, can you give me a dime? And as soon as I saw his face, I was shocked to see that it was my own father. I said, Father, Father, do you know me? Throwing his arms around me with tears, he said, Oh, my son, I found you. I found you a dime. All I have is yours. And then the man said this. Think of it. I was a tramp. I stood begging my own father for 10 cents when for years he had been looking for me to give me all his wealth. How often do we live that way? Father, could you give me a dime? When he has untold riches and untold resources for us to live a life that's worthy of the calling with which he's called us. Let's pray. Father, I feel so inadequate, Lord, to articulate the depths of these truths. 
You've given us through Your servant Paul. Lord, these truths that declare what You have done, who You are, who we are, and what we have all through the blood of Your Son. All because of His sacrifice for us. Lord, help us understand. Give us strength in our inner mans to live these things out. May Your Spirit do a work in us. May He do a mighty work within this body, Lord. May You continue to unfold the truths of Your Word. We thank You for this book. We thank You for Your Scriptures. We thank You, Lord, that You do not pound us with commands apart from empowering us to live them out and encouraging us and motivating us to do that. Lord, may we live a life that's worthy of our calling for your honor and to please you so that you may be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.